Welcome back, everybody, to the Positive That Podcast. Today, I'm sitting here with my buddy, Ben Osborne from Bleacher Report. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeff. Happy to be here. So they always say you should never turn down an invitation, right? They say if you're getting invited somewhere, you should usually go. So back to the story of how we met, we were uh, both, I think, plus ones to Halstead's real estate holiday party back many moons ago. That was between the 2014 and 2016. I don't remember the 2015, maybe. I don't remember yeah, the exact 20, date. 2015. December, probably. Yeah, it was in the city. I remember showing up there. I'm like, oh, I'm around 1,500 realtors. I don't want to talk to on an after hours night. And then Amela had introduced me to you and your girlfriend. And you and I wound up sitting in the corner talking for the majority of the show. So that's yes. where it all started. Yes, sir. And I believe the next day I received like 15 Slam magazines to my office. <laughs> A little care I was, package. I was always looking to, uh, you know, spread the love. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about how you got started in the sports writing and sports world. I mean, it's just something I was extremely interested in from a very young age. You know, I played baseball, basketball, football, soccer as a kid, wanted to be an athlete like 8 million other kids. But I was also a really good reader, writer, observer of the sport. And I think that, you know, I sort of put two and two together when you start to play travel and get outside your neighborhood or your town. And it's like these guys are better than me they're bigger <laughs> they're faster maybe they work harder but like you know this is not going to go beyond high school i think athletes in all sports it's a fine line between like making the most of your abilities but being realistic i was extremely realistic did you always write about so, sports even while you're playing well, with them or not yeah so I'm, so you know maybe that's 13 14 i'm like my new dream is not to be make it to major league baseball which is going to be impossible, but maybe I'll write about it. I love Sports Illustrated. I love the newspaper. English, I tend to always get good grades in. So whatever, yeah, high school newspaper did that. We had a little TV studio with, the you know, do like a high school news program, do sports on that, look at colleges, think about do they have a journalism program? Is it in a city? You know, places where theoretically I could hone the skills yeah, I went to George Washington University in D.C. My first day on campus, I walked into the school paper. I said, what can I do for you? You can cover the women's soccer team, and you can sell ads. Did you date any women's soccer players? I did not. <laughs> no, cool. I, was, I was very professional. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I mean, literally started there my first day, and for the better part of now, were you years. writing more of recaps on games and like your opinions? Oh, or everything. How, like, I mean, game recaps, profiles, previews. I would do. You know, I wrote for the arts department. You know, I would do album reviews. Eventually, I covered the women's basketball team, which was really good. I became a sports editor my junior year. So, to last two years, I was the sports editor of the paper. The editor-in-chief from that paper graduated and went and worked at the Washington Post Sports Department, which was then and maybe now the best in America. And she gave me a part-time job my senior year, so I worked there two nights a week. I mean, that was incredible. You had Tony Kornheiser, Michael Wilbon, Jay Adonde. Her name was Rachel Alexander, Rachel Nichols that you know from ESPN. I mean, the, it was literally just superstars, and wow. I'm answering the phone and taking messages for them. So I was hooked. Graduated college, moved back to home to New York, applied to, you know, this is certainly the media, was and is the sports media capital of the world, and reached out to a bunch of outlets, and Slam Magazine had a internship available. Well, actually, they said our intern just quit, 
<laughs> if you can come in the next three days, we'll pay you $5 an hour. We need a lot of transcribing. $5 an hour. $5 really? an hour to transcribe, which is yeah, just yeah, listening sure, to interviews. Sure. And that was like, I think I started on a Wednesday, so I had three days to kind of prove myself. And in some fashion, I worked for them for 20 years. Wow. So, so um, what was it like working for Slam? It was awesome. Which happened to actually be in this building. Yeah, the, the craziest thing. Yeah, when you when you <laughs> sent me the studio reservation, I did a triple take because 1115 Broadway is very, very famous in, uh, you know, slam annals and a lot of great stuff happened. We were on the eighth floor. Now we're on 11 right now, but really crazy. So yeah, I would come in here. I was an intern. I was a senior editor. I was an associate editor. I was a part-time contributor and eventually in December 2006, I became editor-in-chief of Slam, which I held till July 2016. And most of that was here. The very end, we had moved and we had a different owner, but most of it was in this building. It was a company called Harris Publications. They did Guitar World. They did Double XL, Dog News. I mean, they had gun magazines, gardening magazines. If there was a niche, like Harris Publications had a had a magazine for it, but you know, Slam was was one of the biggest, if not the the biggest, because it was glossy and we covered the NBA, and it was cool. It was just a really small team, really auth- You know, now authentic is like a catchphrase. We sure. weren't we weren't using that yeah. word. We just liked hoops. We had some fun with language. We didn't necessarily follow all the traditional rules of journalism let's yep, say yep. Um, but we just had a good time the players related to us great name good, too yeah Slam. great great name it was really really fun and amazingly talented people came through there as writers as photographers i think it was and is a small brand but i think it had massive influence in how espn the magazine developed and how bleacher report where i work now developed and i'll never forget it so you then transitioned from a small mom and pop shop, Slam, which was a great household name in the sports world, especially in basketball and New York City, into a big corporate tech West Coast conglomerate bleacher report. Talk to us, A, why you made that switch, B, what the transition was like transitioning from a 10-person company to a huge company, yep. and where you're at today in your career there. I mean, it was a absolutely massive shift I don't know if there's any way to prepare for it. I mean, my my title on paper is the same. It was like your editor-in-chief of Slam, and someone at Bleacher Report says, we want to make you editor-in-chief of Bleacher Report. You get to be responsible for all sports and a lot more people. But it sounded sort of similar, you sure. know. It's just the scale of the operation makes that not True. I mean, you. I, I'm more of a people manager, and I'm only in charge of our text content, which is no small thing. We publish thousand, you know, probably a thousand articles a week. Some of which are really good and require a lot of time and attention. But at Slam, editor in chief meant you're in charge of social, you're in charge of video, the website, the magazine. So BR is a lot. It's kind of like everyone's sort of got to stay in their lane. Right. So do you feel like at Slam you were the editor-in-chief but wore 15 other hats because yes. there was only 10 people in the company? Correct. Opposed to Bleach Report has a person for each specific role Correct. or responsibility. Correct. And, you know, I think that's how big companies operate. But that was a that was a big adjustment. I mean, the appeal for me was like, well, definitely money. <laughs> you know, slam, you're not going to get rich at Slam. You're right. going to get your heart is going to be enriched, but your bank account isn't necessarily. Yeah. Plus, 
while I love basketball and I, I think it's the only sport that would justify its own magazine because of the sneakers, the culture, like if sure. I had to work in one, I would pick that. But I love baseball. I love football. I love soccer, hockey, golf. Like I'm an all sports fan and I think I have something to offer on all of them. And that was wasted at slam, you know? So it was like the chance to work with sure. all these things, all these sports I care about was huge. And you know, even just professionally, it's like, at what point are you, you're just the slam guy. I mean, I was a little worried about that. It, it's not like being there forever would have been a bad thing, but, you know, I wanted to see what else was out there. I I honestly, I mean, it wasn't altruistic. I didn't like quit so that they could get new blood, but I even felt like slam, you know, 10 years, I'm the longest tenured editor of slam by Different far. Sure. And the guy who replaced me, Adam Figman is amazing. And I think, I think it's been good for everybody. Really. I would say I have a smidge less fun on a day in day out basis. <laughs> it just slam just has this energy mm -hmm. that it's hard to replicate at a giant big company, but there's no regrets. I mean, I think it was the, I think it was a smart thing to do. So that's just exposed me to different leagues, different players, different agents, different content. And that's been, that's been really exciting, you know? So yeah, over, been over three years now. Now, what do you tell somebody that enjoys writing, that wants to try and earn from writing, whether it's editorial or it's a blog or whatever it might be, right? What's your advice to somebody that really wants to turn their passion for writing into income, if you have any? <laughs> um, I mean, I challenge them. I, I think that writing is a wonderful hobby, and I, I never want to cramp someone's creative vision. I think it's a good outlet. But to make a living off of it is is challenging. I mean, I, I just think that sort of general content about a sport or a player that isn't super specific or really filled with expertise or really, really well done to me is just kind of interchangeable. And eventually there will be less need for that. There will always be a need for expertise, someone that can watch a game and like really explain whether you get into the athlete's psyche or you're, you know, you understand analytics and you can explain the game from that perspective or you're really well sourced and you can get quotes out of coaches or players or front office people that other people can't, you know, that is going to have value forever. And if you're just, I mean, this thing is very subjective, but you know, some people are just gifted writers and when they tell a story, it just has a beautiful flow. That's not going anywhere either. But if you're just going to go to a game, recap what happened, there's not a future in that in my opinion, I mean, that can be basically automated at some point if all you're going to do is say, so-and-so scored with six minutes left on the clock, blah, blah. So, you know, writing skills, being, you know, knowing grammar, writing a crafty sentence, being creative, I mean, that has skills, Brand, you know, more and more people, non-media companies are making their own content, sure. writing scripts, making their commercials better, making their ad copy better. So I don't think the skill set required to publish an article in a newspaper or website, that's not diminishing, but I think the jobs where you get paid to write, you know, mediocre well, you said sports, sports content. I think that, yeah, Sports Illustrated 50 is 50 people today. Something okay. like 50 people today or tomorrow. And that was the, you know, bastion of great sports writing. And, you know, the people that have bought that clearly don't think that that's a 
they're not going to stop making written content, but they're clearly going to, they're going to lessen the value they put on it, which is sort of my point. There's like, you don't need, there's probably more people out there writing than are needed or that, that, that the market is, is calling for. Would you consider a writer or an editor more of a gig job than a career at this point? You have your full nine to five career job that you have to pay the bills and writing comes like before or after hours. I mean, if you're not super elite, yes. I mean, that's probably a smarter way to dip your toe in, right. you know, because then you can kind of see what sticks and, you know, there's certainly freelance writing or editing gigs out there that are probably a good way to test, like, do I have what it takes? But to just set out and say, I'm going to do a full-time job with this skill set, I I think, I mean, it's all, I mean, it, it's probably always been hard, but I think it will continue to be hard. And I, there's other like market factors too. I mean, there was a time where it was cool to own a content website. And so their valuations were super high and then they staffed up accordingly. But like, I think people are looking under the hood a little bit and what is this website really worth? And so then the people that sure. run it, you know, budgets are being cut and, I mean, I just, you know, if you had a startup now, you're not going to, you're not going to sell for what might have happened. And if you're, you know, I don't know what you would call vice, but that was valued at ridiculous yeah. numbers yeah. that that's not, you know, people have realized like it's inflated. So as the values come down, then people have to make cuts and then it's like only the elite will, will survive. What's your advice or opinion on titles of articles or books or anything, right? Obviously, most people are title happy, meaning like, oh, I saw this post and here was the title on it, or I saw this media, I went to marketwatch.com and U.S. housing plummets or New York City real estate falls off a cliff. What's your advice to somebody that's writing content for themselves or their posts or again, their whatever? What's your advice on coming up with a creative title, even an email to be crafty? It does take both. I don't want to, you know, I guess I'm a purist and I'm going to care a little more about what I read inside it. You can't have the headline and no meat to it, but I'm not that different from the average consumer. I mean, I think Bleacher Report research where we're very data driven. I mean, we, we say like the headline has to grab you by the throat. Mm -hmm. Like we are presented with so many, go to any website, there's a thousand headlines, scroll through Twitter it's nonstop options of like something you could click through. So you, I do think you absolutely need that. It can be extreme. Don't lie, but it can be extreme. And then it becomes a sort of a measure of like, can you be trusted? If you, if you have a headline and the article lives up to it, well, then the next time I'm going to trust them. And that's how you develop like lots of people clicking through, you know, you might get a huge audience on the first time, Mm -hmm. but if then they, they read it and, it's funny. On um, so on the way up, we, we tried to get out at eight where Harris Publications is. This nice woman was on and said, "Oh, you can't get out there. We're on seven and eight. And I'm like, "Oh, what's there?" And she says, "Tabula." Now I don't clearly. I, I believe they're actually about to buy Outbrain. I don't know exactly how it works, but Jeff or anyone out there, like th- these are companies that do that. Like at the bottom of a lot of websites, there'll be five kind of picture boxes. This is a great example. It'll be some, you know, an attractive person or accident or something like eye catching. And the headline will be super grabby. Three-year-old drives Ferrari into Hudson River. Correct. (laughs) And like, 
you know, you know, you're like, don't click, don't click, don't click. <laughs> but sometimes you do. And in this case, you're always burned. Right, like it doesn't. Right, right, and then right. you're just reminded, like, don't ever do that. So I think, who knows, they're probably worth more than anyone now because people do click. They ha- almost have to click. But, but yeah. like, if you want to be a reputable, you know, they don't have really, again, I, I don't mean any disrespect. I don't understand it exactly. But my hunch is that they don't really need anything more than that first click. That's all they need. Because I don't think they're making original content. They're just it's just aggregation. But if you're an original source of Bleacher Report or ESPN or Slam wants to do their version of a spectacular headline or a grabbing headline, when you click through it has to be you can't afford to like not deliver it. Maybe not to the degree the the headline implies, but you gotta come close. And this is not new. I mean, newspapers a hundred years ago, fifty years ago, what Tabloids, the New York Post. We landed on the moon. (laughs) Yeah. How are they going to get you to go in your pocket and spend 25 cents or 50 cents to pick up the... And keep coming back. And keep coming back. So they attract you with the headline and then they hope the content is good. So I think even for people coming up, it's, it's it's really both. You know, you can't write this beautiful story and put a boring headline no one's going to read it. But if you put the amazing headline and the story sucks, after one or two times, they're going to stop coming back. So it, it, they're, they're kind of different skill sets. And obviously, when you're by yourself, you got to do it yourself at a bigger place like Bleacher Report. You know, that tends to be two different people. The writer, it's the writer's job to do the story, and then they turn it over. The editor cleans up the story, and the editor puts the headline on, which is... Oh, really? I didn't know that. Absolutely. Oh, wow. And in, so you read in the our story case, first, and then come up with the title. Correct. Same thing and, with the book. and in our case, we would even consult with like an analytics department, perhaps, for feedback on, like, is this... Are these good words? Is this Picked gonna, up by SEO and all of those Correct. Stuff. Wow. Correct. So, that, you, so go, you guys go that far in depth in order Absolutely. To I mean, a lot of our stuff... Does that kind of dilute I mean, feature, the message, though? It has to, because somebody writes their own words, right? And someone else comes in and plus or minuses someone's story, right, or trail. It kind of changes up the authentic message that they're writing, I would feel, right? Yeah, but they want it to get read. I guess, yeah. You know, I think it's a balance. I, I think a pure feature story, we're going to be the most loyal to the content. Mm-hmm. But if you, you know, we do lots of lists and rankings and, like, free agency moves that must be made, something like that, you might as well basically run it through a SEO test or, or think about it. Yes, we're creating helpful content to a sure. fan, but we're doing it to get reads. So I, you know, I think it's a bit of a, I think it's a, it's a luxury. I mean, I get it if, if I was writing it and it doesn't align with how I would want it, but there's not a big mystery. It's like, we're paying you to write this ranking column or this analysis column so that people find it on Google or in our app about that league, you should want the headline that's going to get the most clicks. When we do a when we do a feature story, a BR mag story where it's really well written, it's a lot of interviews, travel, photos, you know, those headlines you're going to have a lot more creativity with. But even those it's it doesn't like it's the up to the editor. They don't have to check, but I don't think it's a bad idea to just kind of send a Slack or ask someone like, is this headline friendly enough? You know, you just, you want, you want people to read it again. This is a deeply reported story that is created for great storytelling. You don't want, you don't want a dishonest headline. That's going to be a bad experience, but it's not bad in my opinion to tweak a word or two so that, you know, people find it. So what was it like transitioning 
bring your ego into this. What, what was it like transitioning from being an editor to editor in chief? Were there some roles that you took on that you necessarily didn't like or thought that maybe you were more qualified or less qualified for? What was that like? From just a kind of a story editor at Slam to editor in chief was a was a huge jump because you become a leader and you're not it's not just, you know, fix up this article. You're you have, you know, instead of being responsible for one article, you have forty articles and you have to think holistically and you gotta work more with the ad guy and the art department or whatever. That would be at Slam. At Bleacher Report, it's even more of a it's really a management job. Yeah, it's a big it's a it's a big difference, and it some days it's good, and some days it's bad. Do you feel like it took away from your overall creativity though? Because you're creative, obviously, right? Your skill is writing and editing. So if now you're managing other people. Do you feel like you've elevated yourself from being the player to now like the coach player? Yes, and I I don't think there was any way to really prepare for that or know if I was good at it, but it's worked so far. I think in my particular case, you know, I, I think BR might be trending to a place where I can do more of a mix. And I think we're trying to put people in positions to succeed. So I could see the, it's swinging a little back to creativity and that's fine. I mean, I have ideas and I, I like to work with editors and writers, but again, at a place that's so big, it's not as hard to like take your hands off because it's like, we have a skilled writer for this story. We have a skilled editor for this story. And I don't want to be, I don't want to cramp there. Sure. You know, that's really their job. Mine is like thinking of, you know, hundreds of stories. So I'm not doing my job if I spend too much time on any one of them. And and I, I don't want to be overbearing to the people who are owning it. So, you know, I pick my spots. I don't want us to do something that I just strongly, strongly, strongly disagree with. But for the most part, I, I try to be not too precious about any one piece of content because I, I don't have, it's not realistic that I would care deeply about every single sure, story the sure. way I used to be able to. Right. So instead, it's like care about the people, care about their general Who might vibe. Like what? Yeah. You know, is this person happy at work? Are they doing a good job more or less? And then the content will be good. And then you don't have to obsess too much about each each piece, basically. Now, how long do you believe a topic? So I'm going to use the hot topic right now. Let's say Antonio Brown, right? So drama, 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 gets straight, whatever, goes to Oakland, drama in Pittsburgh, goes to Oakland, feet cryotherapy issue, helmet issue, drama on the field, tweets, Post goes to New England finally, drama, 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 drama. And now, you know, he's filing a grievance. At what point does a consumer, based on your experience, say, I'm tired of hearing about Antonio Brown? And at what point does Bleach Report say, we can't cover his drama all day long, whether you are a fan or not a fan of him? Do you kind of like beat a dead horse to a point where like no one cares anymore? Or do you overdo the coverage? Well, on the purely news and analysis side, we are going to be like really watching how people respond. Like when it first AB to the Patriots, which yeah. we actually broke, one of our Master oh, wow. Tisfatian, actually one of our reporters was the first to have it, which was amazing. That's great. And then we had a news story and, you know, that was like one of the busiest, one of the most traffic things we'd ever done. That definitely continued. The more drama and that SI had the next big scoop with the 
harassment of the trainer, still huge numbers, huge numbers. So when that's happening, we're going to make more stuff about him. So while it's hot, you got to strike. Yes, but not necessarily like with deep reporting. Like this is quick turn stuff. This is aggregating other things, maybe a quick column about why he does or does not belong to just seize off of the search and the buzz. And then now I would say that's already slowing down. And probably soon, what he tweeted is not going to be newsworthy. It's not even relevant, yeah. And then what's left, and whether we put the resources or ESPN, I mean, there, I think there's room for like a really deep piece on him, ideally with his permission. I mean, this is my personal course, take, but like, there's got to be mental health issues, upbringing not to be over sympathetic or over overly critical but I think if if he like turned off if I you know he should turn off his twitter 100% and just relax and try to gather his thoughts and then if he were to share not just a reaction to a suspension or a helmet or a woman accusing him of something but like tell his whole life I think you have a very compelling long text piece or even a documentary about this guy but that could come out in six months. That could come out in three years. Like, but again, yeah, the quick news Antonio said this on Twitter. I bet that will be start to lose interest, you know, in the next week or two, because eventually it's like, this is not, there's not real news here. You're just kind of caught up in a drama and sports can do that like any other topic. But I think that's not that's not long lived. So again, we will we will go where the news is and where the eyeballs are for a while, but eventually it's like the the only thing that's really worth putting resources to would be a really smart story about this and if we can come up with that and get his, you know, cooperation, fine and if not, like let let someone else do it, but we don't need to keep just rehashing the same stuff. Where do you see the hybrid of social media public accounts privately held in conjunction with a bleacher report. Do you ever see people, independent influencers being contributors to a bleacher report or having some type of flow where bleacher report might, you know, engage an influencer to give their opinion or like bring on different columnists, anything like that? Well, for one thing, I mean, we love, I think we're the most engaged social accounts in sports on Twitter and Instagram. So A, we're incredibly grateful for, all of the interaction, and I, you know, I think that that speaks volumes about Bleacher Report as a brand. But what is very special about us is that we have an app that is great with scores and news, and and you know, we have these streams. If if you like the Yankees, we're giving you stories about the Yankees all day long, whether we wrote them or ESPN. You know, we're agnostic about where we share from. So it was created as really a service, and it's really good at that. But what we've started to add is that now you can comment in the app and now we can verify users and we're going to have, I don't think this is a secret, but I believe there will be direct message capabilities. But whether, whenever that happens, I mean, you could go in in it today and our main baseball writer did like a Q and a basically, and you could go in and ask him questions. There were hundreds of questions. Awesome. So ultimately we want to be a social network. You know, we you need want, to be. Almost. Yeah, we want to be our own. Um, and touch it, feel it. And that would be absolutely amazing and a difference between us and everyone else. So already, yeah, it's basically we saw the power of of user engagement and 
And then we saw we had this app where people went for scores and news. And what if we could kind of combine them? You know, I don't see us not relying on Twitter or Instagram anytime soon. But again, if we can get people talking about sports in our app, I mean, what an amazing um, what a, that's what your a, platform. That's, a, that's our platform, and then then we are not then we are different from everybody else. And the value proposition could be like if you're on Twitter, unless you're like super disciplined about only following sports, you know, you're going to get political news, you're going to get music, like whatever. You're a well-rounded person, yep, but yep. it's not like it can be a sports-only experience. And then you go on Instagram. It's like, sure, the visuals are beautiful, but the algorithm is so confusing. Like, you can't follow a game. You might see a highlight three days after it happens. Right. So we would try to be the the social platform for sports, you know? Now, do if you, you want politics, go somewhere else. App. If you want beautiful imagery in no logical time frame, go, you know, they're, they're not going to go anywhere, sure. but they're not sports first. Facebook is not sports first. We would be the social network for sports. Now, how do you compare good or bad ESPN to Bleacher Report, like toe-to-toe? Is it still that David versus Goliath thought process, or is it kind of like, hey, you know, David's growing a little bit right now, David being Bleacher Report, obviously? I think our social and the fan engagement that we have of a younger audience, I'm sure, makes them very nervous and is a big differentiator for us. The big differentiator that they have that we're a far cry from is they have live, right? They have television channels with games on them Hmm. with millions of people. National attention. Yeah, national attention. So obviously they pay a lot for that. You know, we don't have to pay, but then we don't have that. We're not owned by Disney. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, now we are owned by AT&T, which is Turner. You know, I see maybe someday us growing and getting channels and stuff, but as long as they have, however, six linear networks and we have zero, it's still a little apples and oranges. But I think, you know, when I assign a big feature story, I want it to be as good as anything anyone could read on ESPN or in an the Washington Post, like I think our deep text pieces, I'd like to think are at that level when I'm not in charge of some of our shows, but you, you know, we had a big thing yesterday with Percy Harvin telling what's he doing today. I don't know what he does anymore. Um, he was a freak. He's a Gator, Florida Gator. Yeah. And, and he spoke very frankly about anxiety and wow. marijuana and fights in the locker room. And well, he saw Aaron Hernandez, with, Tebow, all those guys. Yeah. And and when we publish something like that on social or on a yeah. website, again, I think the quality is as good as anywhere else. It's just we don't have, there's not Bleacher Report TV and there's cord cutters and less people have cable, yada, yada. But that's still a massive, massive audience with, you know, that just has a next scale of reach. So it's like as a overall company, we are still, we're playing a different game. But when we compete on equal playing fields, mm-hmm. like a social media platform that neither of us own or article versus article or, you know, short video versus short video, I think we've shown we're as good or better at a lot of things. But I just have to remind people if they try to say we're peers, it's like, yes, in a lot of things, but you know, where are you watching they have their Monday Night Football? Guys, where are you yeah. watching the baseball playoffs? Yep. Where are you yep. watching games? I mean, your graphic, your, in my opinion, your guys' graphics visually are much better than ESPN. You know, if you go to Bleach Report on Instagram, you got cool caricatures and, like, creative stuff, like, first, right there. Like, literally, the game will True. end. Six seconds later, you're like, wait, the game just ended. How did they put the stats up with 
whoever Aaron Rodgers' eyes coming out. Yeah, no, crazy, we, have, we have people making original content yeah. for social platforms, Powerful. thinking ahead, planning months in advance. What do we do if Rodgers has a great game? What do we do if he has a terrible months game? Months in advance. Wow. I mean, months or would whatever. Be a Super yeah, Bowl, yeah, but yeah. fine. A sure. big Packer game, sure. a few days in advance, you know, so. So there's um, thought behind it. It's not just like, hey, he just got hot. Make this image immediately. No, there's, they're planning, they're wow. planning ahead. Cool. They're, it's super smart. I mean, that's why the social feeds are so good. Now, to a personal level, you wrote a book. You helped me edit my book. You edited my book that I wrote. Talk to somebody that wants to write their own book. What advice do you have to give them to you know get their ideas on paper? How do you go about doing it the right way? Do you recommend self-publishing and everything else? Or what's the right way, in your opinion, in today's world, for someone to get their own book out there? I mean, first and foremost, and what I loved and respected about you and your project, you know, whether it's because I've done a couple books or I'm an editor, the amount of friends and colleagues over the years that are like, I'm going to do a book. I, I can't even count. I mean, literally everyone thinks they have a book in them and you're one of the few people like that actually did it. You sat down and you banged out 40,000 words, 50,000 words. So I think I, mean, that, I came to, I only had like 12,000. You're like, what's, what's this shit? Yeah, this is but an you article. did it fast. Yeah. So I think that that hurdle of just cranking out the words is right off the bat, separates you from most people with an idea. Once you do it, I mean, I'm not really sure. I'd, I'd almost throw it back to you. I mean, I think even in this day and age, there's a certain credibility that become, that comes with a big publisher. You get marketing advice, you know, you get support, you get high level editing, and most consumers probably still have a bias towards that. Mm -hmm. But Obviously, the the freedom that comes with self publishing, as you experienced, I know other people that have done it. I mean, I, it's just a that's really just a personal opinion, but I think it's a great movement that it's that it's a thing. You know, that's if you went back do. twenty years, Easier. I think it was very it was very very hard, and now you can print on demand, and you know you don't have to print twenty thousand books. Yeah, you can buy one do a thousand. You, you can do five, yep. whatever. So I think not to start down that path if you're not confident in what you're going to do. But again, if you have an idea, if it's whether it's your personal story, whether it's expertise, you just got to do it. And then again, whether you have to hire someone later or you're friends with an editor, like the editing and the reshaping can come after, but you need that. 10,000 words is not a book. That's a pamphlet or a long article, which is fine. But if you say, I want to write a book, I think there's got to be some real meat there, and that takes a lot of discipline or, or hard work, whether that's for three days or three weeks, or maybe it's over a lifetime and you just do a few writings a day. But I, I do think that people have a tendency to underrate that aspect of it, of just the sitting down and, and cranking it out. So I, I respect you for doing it, and really anyone that put in the time and put something out, be it with a publisher or self-published, I, I commend their their effort. What's been your experience in getting your word or communication across somebody that is reading what you're putting out there, but not understanding your message. How do you translate what's in your head and what you feel on the inside onto paper where everyone can read it and understand it? Like well, you for might better think or worse, thing, I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't really have to do that anymore. <laughs> Lucky. And I was. But never, you have a girlfriend, and you send her text messages. I'm sure, so you can you can relate to that. <laughs> True. I mean, that's hard. I, that's a great question. It's a mix of like being yourself, but you don't want to 
I don't know. I mean, look, sensitive things, I, I would still rather discuss face-to-face or, or on the phone. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I think I don't think I have the skill for deeply personal uh, statements in writing. And, and I think that, you know, those of us, there's journalism and then there's like fiction writing. And I think that, you know, I had an ability to watch what was happening and retell it in an effective way way or I, I wrote a book about the Brooklyn Cyclones. I told the story of a season and people that were influenced by it. I wrote a book about sneakers. I'm describing sneakers. But true human emotion, like I don't have that skill set. There's plenty of, you know, beautiful fiction that you really feel. That's another level of skill that I don't have. And can those authors do they write better text messages to their partners than I do? Maybe. I'm I'm not really sure. Do they freeze up when it's themselves? But you know, I think I, I think I'm an observer and can relay that, which is a skill for sure. But you know, again, first person fiction or or great opinion writing. If you if you read New York Times opinion column or or anyone writing like from the heart mm-hmm. and doing it really well, I don't have that. It's just not you. I just not me. I mean, I I sort of wish I did. I think that's an unbelievable skill, but it, it's uh, it's really really hard. I mean, we talked before about should someone go into writing or not. If you have that, that would put you in the elite category to me. If you can, if you can just make your feelings known in a beautiful and easy to understand fashion, like that's a huge skill. I don't. I think most people don't don't possess that. So you said earlier, and I agree in most, I feel like in most industries right now, like there's hot industries and those industries usually become saturated. Everyone's in a, especially in New York city, everyone's in real estate, everyone's an attorney, everyone's a blogger or a writer and fashion, whatever they are in the country. I'm a Ken accountant, all these boring jobs. Do you feel as if everyone's a writer in today's world? I mean, you said earlier that you believe that there's too many writers needed for what, or the market has dictated there's too many writers, which is why Sports Illustrated is laying off 50 people, for example, because they're not needed anymore? Yeah, I mean, it's there's two levels. Like, on one hand, I don't care. You know, social media has allowed every literally everyone to be a writer. Mm-hmm. It's a Facebook status update, or it's a tweet with an opinion, or it's Instagram with a long story. You know, that's great. People are creative. You know, at the heyday of blogging, you want to start a blog. Like, I don't, that's fine. So, yes, everyone is a writer for their personal sake, their personal brand, what have you. But as far as like making a living doing it, yeah, I I just think there's not, you know, I don't think there's enough audience. There's like too much content, you know, probably video and, and text. So, yeah, I don't think it's a growth industry as far as getting paid to do it, but if people enjoy it, they enjoy telling their story or communicating, you know, to the public, that's fine. You know, there's no there's no value judgment for me on like people doing it for themselves or their friends, but if too many of them think that it's going to be, you know, it's going to pay the bills, I I think I don't see that happening. Certainly so- not growing. So for those of you that know me and don't know me, I, I love getting getting gifts, right? So I always said, make sure you bring some gifts. So if you're listening to the podcast, go to the YouTube video and you'll see that Ben brought two Bleacher Report shirts here. 
I haven't decided which one I'm going to keep yet for my updated BR swag. But <laughs> if you're listening to the podcast, go to the YouTube video, comment below if you're interested. We'll do one, a giveaway for one of the listeners. You if go. you're watching the YouTube video, that's probably going to be the one I keep. And this is probably going to be the one that we do a giveaway on. So if you're interested, just comment below on it. Obviously, feel free to engage, ask Ben questions. So what we usually do is we wrap up each episode with something for each listener to deposit that to their memory bank. So whether it's personal business, we want you to give somebody real raw advice, whether it's pursue this career or follow your passion, whatever it might be. What's the one thing you want listeners to walk away from your episode with? I think for for me, you know, the key for me was deciding early on. So I think if you're young, that can be very valuable. If you're older and you're in a career that you've been after for a long time, I think you can and should embrace that. And if you're older and doing something you don't love and, you know, the thing that you do love, you didn't pursue for whatever reason, peer pressure, you couldn't afford to do it, you know, there were no opportunities, I would advise you to revisit it because, you know, one thing I have going for me, whether I'm good a good, <laughs> no, a good writer, good, bad writer, good editor, bad writer. Like I work in sports. I've loved that since I was seven, six, and I care. And when I'm in a room, it's like these people are either going to care as much as me or less. You understand what I'm saying? Like yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that, yeah, yeah, yeah. forget everything else. Yep. People, you know, hopefully I have good people skills. Hopefully I can write a decent sentence. Hopefully I know how to make a story better. I work in sports and I, I care about the players, the outcome, the teams. Like I am a fan since I was six years old and I'm trying to, it's my job to reach fans. That's the most authentic thing connect, possible. So for anyone out there, whether it was sports, music, real estate, if there was something that they were into their entire life, I would encourage them to think about working in that field because it's like you have half the battle. That's what you know. Yeah, exactly. It's like half of my job is taken care of by things that I've been doing my whole life for pleasure. Obviously, again, the sure. other half is show up on time, be good at it, you know, be a good person, be a good manager, a good employee, simple rules, though, simple. you know, but it's like, imagine those folks that do something in a field that they hate, then they have hundred, then a hundred percent of their time is dedicated to like being good at that. Again, I feel like I have a, I only have to work at half of my job, That's half right. of it is pure. I'm reading the new sports news. I'm watching games because I want You'd to be doing it anyway. And it's my job. So that is just a, that is just a big, big, you know, it seems obvious, right. but I don't, you know, I don't think that, that everyone's doing that. So that's what I would advise people to really make sure they've exhausted those opportunities. If they don't love what they're doing, have they really thought through, you know, how could I do, how could I work in a field that I actually love? I think that's something super important to take away from. So I should have played this at the beginning, but we're going to do like an exit song. So because you worked at Slam, I feel like this is the only appropriate song to play for you. Let's see. Not only do I know this. Right. Absolutely classic. Yes, I saw those guys. I saw <laughs> live. Them. Live, yeah. When they first came out, 
yeah, they, they played in yeah, like '94 probably. Yeah. But that's also been. I'm not a common media guest, but through the years, I've certainly been on radio shows or little TV interviews, what have you, and that is absolutely the most popular. Uh, they had to have re- some type reference. of agreement with Slam Magazine. That had to be the official anthem. I don't know if we ever made it official, but it's, it's <laughs> been played many official? times. And, yeah. and yes, yeah, so, you know, that's a good, good memory for sure. Well, super appreciative to have you on the show. Thanks for taking time out of the day. And hopefully, uh, you know, one person took something away from what you got. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. It was a pleasure. We'll have you back on soon. Awesome.